Part One of Thorstein of the Mere, a Saga of the Northmen in Lakeland, by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. To R. C. Thorstein is yours. You've made him yours by masterful appropriation. As long as right of might endures, I dare no other dedication, whatever name allures. You've seized my copy and revise, absorbed the proofs, devoured the pages, retold the tale in travesties, and sketched and played the personages in many a quaint disguise. Thanks, Robin, for the wide world o'er. A writer asks no finer flattery, no kinder fate of all in store than five-year-olds assault and battery demanding more and more but now to risk the wider test of one applauding hand i'm certain let doubts and fears go unconfessed so stop the fiddle lift the curtain and puppets play your best here begins the story of thorstein of the mere chapter one the coming of the northmen there was a man called Swain, who came into our country, once upon a time, and built a home at Greenodd on the Leven. His father Bjorn had been a landowner in Norway, ploughing his own acres and living in health and wealth, until King Harald Fairhair fell upon the people, and fought with them, and made himself lord and master. Then it is well known, good men of the old sort, who could not abide to see new laws made and old laws undone, took to their ships and sailed away west. Some of them landed in Iceland, some went to Orkney, and others wandered about the coasts of the Irish Sea to find a home, and wherever they could get shelter and safety, there they settled. Bjorn with his people and his young child Swain came to the South Isles as they called them then, the Western Isles we call them nowadays. He lived as best he might and died at last in battle, when Harold swept the Vikings from out the seas between Lewis and Man. But Swain found friends and plenty of work, for there was always farming to do in spring and fighting in summer, and in the end he wedded well and sat down under Bardi Otterson, who was then the chief among the Northmen on the Isle of Man. For by this time Kettle Flatnose and his folk were gone to Iceland, and the good King Ori was not yet come therefrom. Una was wife to Swain Bjornson. She was the child of a Viking akin to Olaf the White, the great king of Dublin, and her mother was Irish. And Swain was the sort of man who could serve his friends, so that they were both well thought of in the island, and hoped for a safe home there. But before long came Ragnwald, the Dane of the sons of Ivor, he that was king in Waterford for a little while afterwards and he killed Bardi and most of his people in a sea-fight. Then Swain fled out of the battle hastily, and took his wife and whatever he could lay hands on, and steered for the far-away blue fells that showed under the morning sun, over against the Manx fells. For he knew that some of his kinsfolk had already found lodging on the coasts of Galloway and Cumberland and Wales, where the land was no man's land at that time and creeks and firths among the hills gave them sheltered hiding-places, well out of sight when great fleets swept the high seas and ravaged the open shore. When Black Coombe grew tall on the skyline, 
arose a stormy north-easter and drove him down the cumberland coast until he made furness the great foreland in the bay of morecambe when the wind fell the tide flowed and carried him up a broad firth like a gate into the hills upward he drifted spying on all sides for a good landing spot and try as he might to the shoreward he ran upon sand and never came nigh the soil but in a while he turned round a green point high and rocky and covered with trees standing out into the deep channel behind it was a green field even with the water snug and sheltered among hanging woods a great beck flowed through the field to meet the broad firth there were no people to be seen nor smoke of houses nor cattle about in the good lee land and the channel of the river at last came in shore so he stayed there and called that green point in his language granoddy and greenod it is called to this day chapter two the homestead at greenod once upon an afternoon in summer-time it was that our story begins and so long ago that we may live perhaps to call it a thousand years since swain and his people had not been ten winters yet at greenod but they had built a good house and cleared land to farm it and made the place look something like home so one afternoon before summer was over unna sat rocking her baby thorstein to sleep and sewing as she stirred the cradle with her foot and singing as she sewed she wore a long gown of ruddy colour long-sleeved with a kerchief round her neck and a housewife's apron but because she was of high birth she had a gold band like a crown round her head and her yellow hair was tucked around it and fell away unbraided from under a high white cap a silken pocket hung from her belt and on her finger was a gold ring but her jewels for the most part were locked away in a kist against high days and holidays for this was a working day and every one was busy most folk were out of doors that time of year only the mother was at home minding the baby after her morning's turn round the farm and to keep her company an old nurse who being a brisk body was putting in a spell of work at a standing loom of the ancient make she threw the shuttle slowly and combed up the web but slackly for the afternoon was warm and the sun outside beat upon the roof of the house and made it hot for the house was like one of our barns with its rafters and beams unsealed and though it was heavily thatched the air was hot within it was somewhat gloomy too in spite of the bright sheen that lay on field and fell though door and porch door stood open the rest of the place was lit only by windows that stood high up near the roof in a row on either side of the long hall and they were filled with bladder which kept out the sun one spot there was which had been burst by the stone-throwing of the boys and not mended yet for want of hands in this busy summer time through the hole a ray of sunlight shot across the hall and caught on the chain of the hanging lamp and lit up the thin smoke that rose in the midst for the hearth-fire was never let out if they could help even in summer it was needed morning and evening for their cooking and bad to kindle from firestones and rotten sticks so as wood and peat were plentiful it was smothered between whiles just to keep it alight and thus went on from year's end to year's end the hearth was in the middle of the floor then a days raised a little and paved with cobbles set in samel clay 
one could sit round it as you can still at a fire-spot in a farmhouse of the right old sort and grand times they had of winter's evenings with their great chat fires or else logs of which one end was out at the door while the other was blazing under the black pot there folk would sit working and tale-telling and watching acorns and crab-apples roast and the boiling of their porridge in that same great pot that hung by an iron crook and a chain from the house-beam overhead the rannell-bork as our folk the northman's children call it still up through the gloom and the little space of sun went the thin blue smoke like a stripe of rain out of april clouds halfway to the roof it was met by the chimney flue that hung down likest of aught to a great bell hanging from the roof tree narrow at the top and covered like a belfry with a flagstone laid flat upon pillars but opening out beneath and crossed by the house beam and in this luffer or chimney hung the last hams and smoked meat of the year before for at the back end of the year they always hung their flesh meat against the winter and unna was too wise a housewife to let them eat all up before the next store was laid in however plentiful the season might be you must know this firehouse as we still say was the main hall and living-room of the homestead bedchambers there were alongside of it behind the wall and outbuildings not to say lofts among the beams and an earth-house or cellar dug out under the floor at one end of the hall but the firehouse was the house as one may say and in a homely spot like this backward bigging at greenodd a thousand years since everything went forward in the firehouse cooking and eating work and play business and pleasure this was their hearth and home at one corner were its door and porch opening upon the garth and at the opposite corner there was another door and at the back part were outbuildings rising sharply up the hill behind at the ends of the hall under the gables were great arcs and kists against the wall and at one end the aforesaid loom but along the side were hung the men's weapons spears and shields and coats of mail and their hunting and fishing tackle well out of the way in a row beneath the row of windows and over long benches that lined the hall on either hand in the middle of the benches were two high seats one on this side and one on that over against it they were like the great elbow chairs or settles you see in old farmhouses roomy enough for three carved on their high backs and with carved heads to their posts in front the children had a tale that one head was father and one was mother older folk would say the figures stood for odin and freya anyway they were something more than just ornaments they gave a holiness to the place and made the high seat of the master as it were a kind of temple stall before the benches on one side of the hall stood a long table all of oak like the seats and the wainscoting and the rest brown already with age and bright with rubbing but on the other side the tables had been taken off their trestles and laid up to make more room and because half their men were abroad with swain at sea on this side sat unna in her own high seat with the cradle at her feet and before her the hearth with its thin smoke going up and the sun ray striking through it and blazing in the fern that was strewed on the floor and when the sunspot crept upon the cradle she stooped down and moved it a little backwards so that the bright light should not wake the baby and when he stirred she pushed the cradle with her foot and sang again while she sewed at his shirt 
and the loom went clattering on with the steady noise that is good for baby's slumber. Nothing else was heard except the birds singing in the greenwood around, and far away clamour of people working in the fields. When the baby was sound asleep again, Unna rose and walked softly to see where his brothers might be, and her gown trained on the ferny floor. She stood in the porch and called, but not too loudly. Oh, ho, Orm, Hundy, where are you? What are you doing? But they were off, and so she sat down again, and sewed till her eyelids were heavy with the warmth and the dimness of the place. Hey, barn, she said, what makes one so drowsy? Sleep by day and starve at night, they used to say. Most like a stranger is coming, said the old woman from the loom, for it was thought that a man's fetch went before and brought slumber. Few strangers here but bad ones, said Unna. Maybe it's the master and the men. Why, they're gone but these three weeks, and who knows when they may come back and how, and it's weary waiting, and a deal on one's hands, let alone the chances of raid and robbery. What, there's Rod, thy brother and all, said the old woman sharply, and folk must live. It would be ill-liked if the master never brought home an armful of finery, or another hand or so for the farm, or a barrel of somewhat sharper than we can brew. Aye, it's a lone spot, not that I complain, for Rod is a handy lad. It will be a bad day when he takes land up bank, as he talks of doing. Nay, never heed his talk. He must light on someone fit first, answered the weaver. And how will he do that here away? I'd like to know. As for thy man, and my man, and the rest, they are men with hands to their elbows and heads on their shoulders. Or had, you may say, to start with, said Unna with a sigh. Heads, aye, and know their ways about. Look at my old man. These forty winters he has come back to me the same as ever. Aye, he has a cat's life, as old Tully. Not so old as that comes to, neither, said the crone and thankful we should be for our good men, and for a good roof over us. Eh, hey, child, when I think on all we've come through. No fells, no dales, said she, no loom, no clatter. But she hastened to add, I'm out of sorts to-day. There's over much to be done before they come, to red all up for the back end. There's yon window now. I wonder if the ladder is handy. One might do it oneself sooner than bide for those lazy carls and she got up and walked uneasily to the door again. "'Nay, barn, let it be, it's none of thy job,' said the old woman, muttering to her loom, for there was nobody else to hear. "'The mistress is queer and fidgety to-day. One might think something was going to happen.' But the ladder was up against a rick in the distance, and men were on it, thatching and shouting. Over the water and all around, wooded hills shook in the heat-haze. Unna shaded her eyes, and looked once more for Orm and Hundy, but naught she spied. She came back and sat on a stool against her high seat and tried to sew, but the sunspot crept onto her lap like some little wounded animal, dragging itself painfully to refuge there. It shone through her work and through her fingers, so that they seemed blood-red, and it dived into the red stone in her ring and made it redder than blood and it burned on the gold like the whole sun itself, a blaze of mystery, a dream of glory. Clitter-clatter went on the loom. 
poor soul said the old woman best thing she can do as she saw anna's tired head sink back against the post of the high seat and her long white throat slide out of the white neckerchief and her chin heaved up like a blown wild rose-leaf warm in the reflected sunshine then in the stillness the sunspot dragged itself off her hand and off her lap and tumbled to the floor again in one roundel just like a bubble that gathers itself together in the dark pool under a waterfall out of the shattering of the spray a dream of death clitter clatter went on the loom nevertheless and the birds sang still in the green world outside the mother's dreams were soft and sweet of life's love and life's labour that never fail nor come to bitterness for these regard not glory and fear not death chapter three swain's homecoming now we leave mistress honour and baby thorstein asleep to tell about orm and hundy and how they floated boats those boys had run off to the workshop where smithying was done and found a heap of chips and shavings and made each of them a boat with a thin shaving for a sail and of course they must away to the beck as nobody was there to shout after them so they ran over the cobble-paved garth between the byres and out at the gate of the turf wall that stood round about the town then they were at the boat landing among planks and rollers ropes and chains and the delicious smell of tar that hung about the boat-building sheds and reeked in the hot sunshine the shore was steep and shelving into a dub just there so they ran down bank towards the flats that open out below the point under the crags and fir trees of the nab they had to scramble over rocks and stones and to splash through salt pools left by the outgoing tide but soon they came to a stretch of rippled sand between fell and firth and waded a beck that flowed from the woods and wound northward along their edge to join the leaven ha said orm now we're on my fairy island it's all gold and yon side the beck runs down and yon side the beck runs up now we're on my holm and i'll fight thee for thy boat for it was custom among these northmen when two had a quarrel to go upon an island and fight it out so orm beat hundy and ran off with both the boats and pushed them from the shore until they sailed down bank with the tide there was no one to cry for so hundy held his peace he brushed his eyes with his hand and pattered on his bare feet crisping the soppy sand ripples and leaving their prints in a chain of little tarns and when he came to the next bend in the river lo and behold his own boat came straight to shore and into his hands while the boat that orm had made was rocking in mid-channel with its sail draggled in the water orm began to throw handfuls of sand over it to draw it in and while they were intent upon this job and keeping no lookout suddenly they heard shouts not far off and the clash of oars and a great craft swung round into that reach and bore straight down upon the chip boat a moment they stood dumbfounded and then turned and ran for the woods like young rabbits for in those days it was no idle threat when mothers said to truant boys mind you don't go out of sight for fear a man catches you but just when the throb began to beat very hard in their throats they were stopped by the steep crumbling banks of the little beck that bounded the holm they heard like a shepherd calling sheep oh orm 
oh hundy ho and they turned and looked and then looked at one another with bright eyes and panting too much to laugh they set off running back to the ship which they knew well enough now the rowers had eased and brought her close to the edge of the sandbank and that could well be done for she drew very little water and was nigh flat-bottomed swain with a brown square face and bushy fair beard and bright blue eyes laughing out of the locks of his tawny hair came wading ashore he caught up one child under his arm waded out again and hoisted them to hands aboard then catching at the gunwale near the steering oar he raised himself half length and vaulted over the water dripped from his gartered hose and blue kirtle skirts for his mail coat was doffed and he wore only a belted kirtle or blouse over his white linen sark eh hey, father mother will stape thee for getting of thyself in a mess said hundy compassionately but never heed her i'll say it was to fetch us aboard but my dragon is wrecked grumbled orm and is that all you have to say to your old father when he comes home nay said orm looking round coolly what have you brought me no great things barn this trip said swain with half a smile as he took the steering oar now then lads all's well by this token the barns say little but there is enough of it and in our them forward all now a spurt to finish our day's work lift her here she goes lift her lift her a dozen of long blades six aside with a couple of men at each churned the sandy shallows as the boat swept round the curve and upstream long in the keel and low in the board she was with swinging curves at stem and stern rising swan-like to the figurehead and the carved stern-post but the ugly mask of a spitfire dragon was taken off the bows now that they were so near home for it was a belief among these people that the land whites the good fairies and useful brownies would be scared by such a sight or at least take it in dudgeon and depart so the figurehead had a good face for home waters and a hideous one to put on when they got out to sea and to work among strangers the gunwales were notched into dog-tooth markings and what old wives call box-pattern in their quiltings the strong upstanding tholes were curiously carved with knots and worm-twists great oars were lashed to these tholes and the rowers stood to their work and pushed the handles there was a step for a mast forward but the mast and yard were lying along the gangway that ran between the ranks of rowers from the decked forecastle to the quarter-deck and the sail useless to-day was wrapped about the spars there was little else to be seen the few bales or chests she might carry were stowed below and her decks were clear as if at any moment she might meet with an enemy over the gunwale hung the men's shields a dozen aside each by its strap from its own pin and ready to be caught up in the twinkling of an eye black and gold they were painted for the most part and if one was more black then the next was more golden so they made a fine show from without every man aboard was a sturdy fellow who would go through with it whatever he took in hand bronzed with the sun and great thewed with downright hard work some of them were swain's own northmen from the isle of man old comrades and followers of former days some were welsh of the country his bought servants 
but trusty men under a good leader. They were all his housemates, or lived in cots of their own hard by. So now that they were near home they laid to with a will. The children played helping father with the steering sweep, which knocked them over every time it was put up or down. Swain gave the stroke, faster and faster as the landing-place came in sight, with his lifter, and they made her spin up the last reach. Round she went, and half-way up the bank, ploughing the sand. Orm and Hundy tumbled on the deck, laughing. Then out men leapt, and ran her up on her rollers above high-water mark, as they were used with these light, flat-bottomed craft. The easier it was, for by now they were spied and recognised from the fields, and a dozen farm-servants had run down to lend a hand. You may be sure it was merry night that evening at Greenodd, and Unna was wide awake and bustling to make amends for her laziness, as she called it. The servant lasses had a busy time, with the fire to stoke, and the supper to cook, and the tables to set. Meanwhile the men went to their bath in the bath-house, and shifted their sea-clothes. Long before the sun sank behind the high fell at the back of the house, they were sitting at meat, cooled and ravenous, on the long hall benches, behind heaps of barley-cake and haver-bread and dried fish. Great bowls of broth and porridge into which many spoons were dipped at once, and platters of butter and cheese and curds, and trenches piled with steaks, which they ate with their sheath-knives. And it may be said for them that if some eat foully with forks, others to the manner bred can eat fairly with fingers. As to drinking, the lasses had their work in running to and fro with ale and buttermilk, to slock and thirsty men who had rowed from Carnforth since breakfast on a broiling hot day. End of part one.